It was a really cool day. Uh, we had a lot of fun. We had rain that morning. For those of you that were in attendance with us in service that day, it was raining really hard as church was ending, or it was about to rain, and then it rained very hard. And uh, I know some of you weren't able to join us, thinking that it was uh, we weren't going to be able to do it. And then the rain stopped just before we started, and it started back right about the time we were ending. But uh, that day, we baptized eight children and one student. And really cool thing about that is, is just that we believe in investing in the next generation. And life change is happening all around our campus and our life groups and in our Sunday services and people of all ages. But that day specifically was a really cool uh, picture of just what God's doing among our children and our students and in our families here. Um, and it was an exciting day. I was so thankful to get to be a part of that. You know, we believe in water baptism. That's what we just watched and what we participated in a couple of weeks ago and what we believe about water baptism and this really is a part of where we're headed today what we believe about water baptism is that water baptism doesn't save you now i know that that's different than some other lines of faith and belief and 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 different religions and even different denominations within christianity or the large umbrella of christianity but we don't believe that public water baptism in any form is what saves you We believe, based on the models of Scripture, the example of Jesus Christ, that what saves you is a decision for Jesus Christ. That you acknowledge in your life that you need Jesus and the work that He did on the cross to save you from your sin, to forgive you of your sins, and and that you acknowledge Him as the Lord and Savior of your life. So not just your Savior, not just, hey, save me from my sins, but also as, as Lord, you say, I want you to lead and guide and direct my life beyond that. And then public water baptism... Is an, is an expression, a public affirmation of what's already happened privately. So what you've done, and it could have happened in a service somewhere, it could have happened in your room, it could have happened during some type of Bible study or devotion or life group or wherever it happened, you at some point made a decision for Jesus Christ. And then water baptism, we believe, is a public expression of that to friends and family. And obviously in an idealistic world for us, we love it when we're able to do that as a church family at an event like we experienced a couple weeks ago. And so every one of the people that stepped in that pool that day They had the opportunity to give us their name and tell us a little bit about who they were, very briefly for most of them. But they all publicly acknowledged, I have accepted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of my life, and so I want to be baptized. And for some reason, whatever their their rationale was, I want to be baptized to show what God has done in my life. And we believe that. That's what we believe. And so let me just say right up front, if you've never been baptized, but you've already made a decision for Jesus Christ, or if you've recently made a decision for Christ inside the worship guide, which today doubles as a fan, uh, that you received inside that is this card. You tear that off. And there's some information right there that says, I am interested in information about water baptism. We would love for you to do that. We'll get you on the docket for our next water baptism event. We would love to have you do that. And the air is coming. I promise we had some issues, but it's coming. Um, I promise you. So water baptism is what we believe. But there is a second baptism that is talked about in Scripture. Water baptism is not the only thing that's referenced about baptism in Scripture. And so today, we're going to look at that other part of baptism as we continue our sermon series called The Spirit. While we're looking at this often misunderstood, this often overlooked part of God and who God is and the work that God wants to do in our life through the Holy Spirit. And let me just be as transparent as I can right up front. today's topic especially, but the whole idea of teaching on the Holy Spirit is something that I've been wrestling with this this entire series, leading up to this series, not because I don't believe in it, not because I haven't experienced it myself and I, and I believe in the fullness of that. Not, not because of any of those reasons. 
but because I have been a part of, and, and, and I've, I've been in great churches, I've been in great worship services and through, through a variety of different venues, but I've been a part of experiences and I've had conversations with people that I know and people that I care about who have been a part of experiences where teaching on the Holy Spirit has either been maybe something that brought about more confusion or experiences that were attributed to the Holy Spirit brought about more confusion. And my hope today and throughout this series is that nothing that I say or that anything that's been said in this series would do that. That we would just point to God's word. We would point to examples of God's word. And we would look to the things that God has done and is doing so that we can all have a really healthy understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in and through our lives. Does that make sense? And so I've really been wrestling with this. I, I, even today's topic, when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's something that I, I've really struggled a little bit with. I've been talking to some folks even this morning but throughout the week about this topic specifically because I, I just, even the people that I, I've sat under their teaching, not anybody close here recently, I'm talking about in my formative years, I believe there were things that in well-intended moments of teaching, my interpretation of maybe what they were saying kind of led me down a path that I don't even know was scriptural. And so, as I talk about the Holy Spirit today and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I want us to point to God's Word. So we're going to spend a good bit of time there to really help us understand what it is that God would say to us. But let me just say right up front, right up front, okay? The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not just about speaking in tongues. Now, I didn't say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit wasn't about speaking in tongues. I didn't say that speaking in tongues wasn't a part of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But let me say right up front, and we're going to get into all of this, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not just about speaking in tongues. And I think that's a big hurdle that a lot of us face, no matter what our context is as we approach this topic. But I want us to look, if you would, if you got your Bibles, to John chapter 20. That's where we're going to start today. We're going to start in John chapter 20. We're going to move into the book of Acts. We'll move into some of the other New Testament letters. But we're going to start in John chapter 20 and look at an experience after the death and resurrection of Jesus to really set up this topic today. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. This is what it says. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, listen to this, receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Verse 24, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. That's a shame there. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. This is where we get doubting Thomas. Stop doubting and believe. Verse 28. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, he is acknowledging who Jesus is in his life. Verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So let's summarize quickly what's happened. Jesus died, he was resurrected, and he has yet to appear to his closest followers, right? His, these disciples. And they're locked in a house for fear of the Jewish leaders who put Jesus to the cross and put him to death. And so they're afraid, hey, we're identified now as some of Jesus' followers. They're going to come and put us to death. So they're locked in a house, afraid for their lives. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And, and they're like, 
Thank God you're here, literally. Um, thank you that you're here. This is exciting. We're, we're glad about this. And man, we see that it's you and what you taught us and the, what, what we've heard that you were alive after your death. That's great. And we're excited about this. But Thomas wasn't there. Now, in this moment, Jesus says to the disciples, receive the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about what this means in a minute. But a lot of scholars kind of look at this as really the conversion moment of the disciples in that they were able to believe and see the resurrected Jesus Christ. Before that, they believed in the teachings of Jesus. They did receive the call to come and follow him and he'll make them fishers of men. And they were very... uh, closely related to the old, the people of the Old Testament and prior to the, to the resurrection of Jesus in that they had to believe in God, Jehovah, and they believed the teachings of the prophets and the, the words that were spoken through the prophets and all these things. But up until that moment, they had never been given the opportunity to believe in and really see and receive the resurrected Jesus. And so you and I have that opportunity to believe in him, the resurrected Jesus, if we choose to do so, that Jesus lived and died and raised from the dead and then eventually was ascended back to the Father. But in this moment, this is where the disciples believe in, because of what they see, the resurrected Jesus. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So this is potentially a moment of conversion or, if nothing else, the moment where the Holy Spirit is imparted to them uh, in, in, the, in the presence of the Holy Spirit for their lives. Okay, so we'll, again, we'll get to that in just a minute. So then Thomas wasn't there. And he hears about it because like any good friends, they're bragging that they got to do something he didn't get to do. Hey, we hung out with Jesus last night. I don't know what you did. And so Thomas is like, well, that's awesome. But I'm not going to believe that what you're telling me is true until I get to see Jesus. You know, the Jesus that I know hung on the cross until I get to put my, my fingers where the nails were, until I get to touch his side where the spear went, until I get to do that, I'm not going to believe that what you're telling me is true. And so a few days later, they're back in that same house. The doors are locked again because they're still afraid. Even though they've seen the resurrected Jesus, they're still terrified for their lives. And so they're there. And even though the door is locked, we just skip right, right over this verse. And I don't know why, but I love this. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. How'd he get in there? That's pretty awesome. Some translations, depending on what you're... Just say that he just came right through the door. Right? He just shows up in the midst of this locked house where they are. He shows up and then he addresses Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Thomas, come here. Put the fingers where you want to. Touch the scars. Touch the side. And, and, he, and then in that moment, Thomas, in response to what he gets to see and experience, says, My Lord, my God. And Jesus acknowledges that he's made some confession of who he, the resurrected Jesus, is. And he says, blessed are you because you believe what you've seen. That's awesome. But even more blessed are the people who believe in me, the resurrected Jesus, and yet have not been able to see me. Haven't been able to touch the scars and on my side. Now, who is Jesus talking about right there? He's talking about me and you. And so this is a moment where we understand a pattern that is developing here. In how Jesus interacts with his disciples, what we as followers, those who have chosen to enter into relationship and follow after Jesus Christ, what we have available to us. We have available to us in entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ to experience and to receive the presence of the Holy Spirit. Everybody say presence. This is often referred to as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we believe that this comes at the moment of conversion. And this is referenced in several places in Scripture. Uh, Romans, uh, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 3 talks about it being the seed of God that lives within us. Uh, I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that talks about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Romans 8 says that the Spirit lives in us and gives us life, life of righteousness. So there is the presence of the Holy Spirit that comes to us and lives in us at that moment of conversion when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus said to his disciples in John 20, receive the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, so if that's the case, then what's he talking about in Acts chapter 1? Flip with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And we're going to read a couple of verses here, some of which may be very familiar to some of you. This is what it says in Acts 1. What's he talking about here if they've already received the Holy Spirit? On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the time or the date the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, if they received the Holy Spirit in John 20, what is it that Jesus would be talking about here that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit or in waiting on the power of the Holy Spirit to carry out some mission or to be witnesses? Or what, what is it that he's referring to? We believe he's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is a second and separate event in the life of a believer Potentially because you receive the presence of the Holy Spirit at conversion, but then you can receive the power of the Holy Spirit through baptism. Now, this is something specific that John himself, John the Baptist, he referenced in Matthew chapter 3. It's actually referenced in all four of the Gospels. I believe it's uh, Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, and then John 1. I believe is how that is, and that's from memory, so that may be wrong. If it's not there, don't be like, oh, Jeremy's a heretic. Don't say that. Matthew chapter 3. I baptize you with water for repentance. This is John talking. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. A direct reference to what we read in Acts chapter 2. So we're going to jump there. And I know I'm causing you to flip around. So if you're not with me, just hang where your finger's at in the Bible there. Acts chapter 2, this is what it says. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 4. There is a reference in that passage in Acts chapter 2 of fire, cloven tongues of fire that came into the upper room where they were all gathered after Jesus had commanded them in Acts 1. Go to the upper room, go to Jerusalem and wait there. They went to this place, they kind of hung out together and they just waited there on the power of God, the, the Holy Spirit of God to descend on them. This gift of God to come to them and the cloven tongues of fire, divided tongues of fire came down, rested on each of them. And then it says right here, what we just read, all of them were filled with the Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues. So there's a pattern here in scripture and we're going to look at two more really quick before we jump into something else. But there is a pattern. And the reason I'm helping us understand this is because there are, uh, there are lines of teaching and, and thought here uh, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes at conversion. And we're talking about two distinct ideas here in these passages of Scripture specifically. We'll talk about how we interpret that maybe with people that have different uh, views of some of these Scriptures. But look at this. These are just too quickly. and They're on the screen, but I'm going to read them very quickly. Uh, this is in Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the idea being that they even were sent to this place because they heard that these people had received the teachings and the words of Jesus and they'd been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they began to pray after Peter and John got there that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received 
the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 19, here's another example. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. So you got Corinth there, which is the people that Paul's writing to in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. You've got Ephesus here, who Paul is writing to in the book of Ephesians. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, referring to the baptism in water for repentance. They replied, verse 4, Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So I may have beat that dead horse, whatever, but to make sure we're all on the same page here, this idea being that conversion brings to us the presence of the Holy Spirit. Baptism brings to us the power of the Holy Spirit to carry out the service that God has called us to do. Now, we, we've read briefly just in each of these some one or two line verses about speaking in tongues or some of the signs and miracles that followed and came. So I want us to look at tongues because anytime you talk about the Holy Spirit, anytime you talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you, you usually get into some conversation about speaking in tongues. So I want us to deal with that for a few minutes before we kind of come back to where we're going to land today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which we read a couple weeks ago when we looked at all of the gifts of the Spirit that we were referencing that day. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7, says this. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And He gives them to each one just as He determines. Let's look at two different kinds of tongues that are uh, visible in Scripture, all right? The day of Pentecost, which we just read about in Acts chapter 2, there was one specific reference here that these people experienced as it relates to tongues. And this is what happened. The tongues that were there that day were intelligible languages. They were the languages of the people in the crowd. They were intelligible in that we could make sense of those tongues. And in that moment, they needed an interpreter not a translator that they needed some, I'm sorry, they needed a translator, not an interpreter, because they just needed someone to translate it from the words that were spoken in a specific language into the language that someone else might be speaking in that moment. So this is what it says in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now listen to this. This is where it gets interesting as it relates to tongues. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Verse 8, then how is it that each of us, all these Jews from all the nations under heaven, how is it that each of us hears them in our own language? And I've said this the last couple of times. I've read this. Verse 9 and 10 just lists a bunch of things that I'm not going to say so you can't make fun of me. Verse 11. Both Jews and converts to Judaism, Christians and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? So the tongues that were spoken on the day of Pentecost were spoken by the people that came out of the upper room in the known languages of the people that were hearing. 
All right. So and, and I referenced this when we talked about tongues not too long ago. But let's just assume for a moment that in this room, all the people on the left side speak Spanish. All the people in the middle speak Chinese. All the people on this side speak French. There would be someone that came out of the upper room proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ in Spanish and Chinese and French. And none of the people speaking in those languages had ever learned that language. So if I was the Spanish-speaking guy coming out of the upper room proclaiming in Spanish, and I can't do that at all other than to say, taco, burrito, Jesus gave us all these amazing things. That's all I know, right? That's all I've got, right? Chinese, I got nothing. Egg roll. I mean, God gave us these great things. French, I don't know. Croissant? Is that a French word? I have no idea. It's food. I'm hungry. So this idea being that these people speaking in the languages of the hearers were speaking languages they had never learned. So what, what's needed there? Not an interpreter to help us interpret the meaning of what is it that they're possibly saying. We just need a translator. That tongue is the idea that we need someone to maybe translate that so that the people that hear Spanish being spoken from one person to a group that speaks Spanish, the Chinese guy just says, hey, is he saying in Spanish the same thing that this Chinese-speaking guy who's never learned Chinese is saying to me about the goodness of God? And so we compare those stories. And so that's all that's happening there, that these people come out and then... Peter steps up and begins to proclaim the good news, the message of Jesus Christ, and 3,000 are added to the church that day. Because he says, repent and be baptized. Right? This is an incredible, incredible moment. Elsewhere in Scripture, other places in the New Testament, we see, and, and let me just say, that the, the example that happened on the day of Pentecost, has, it didn't just end there. It's happened like that before. It's happened like that since. There are other people who, who testify, who claim and, and, and tell the story themselves. That they were in a moment where the power of God, the presence of God spoke through them. And they were able to speak in a language they had never learned. And that's an incredible testimony. I've never had that experience. Someone that I know said that that, that, that very specifically happened to them. I, I've never experienced that myself. But that's, it's not just on the day of Pentecost and then it ended there. There are testimonies of people that experience that exact same power of God through their lives. Other places in the New Testament, we see tongues as an unintelligible language that may need interpretation. Right? This is not the kind of tongues where someone's speaking in a language that other people in the room might know. This is an unintelligible language that someone might need to come by and and exercise their gift of interpretation to help interpret the meaning of that tongue. Let's look here in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 19. It says, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible, understandable words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So what's happening here? Paul's writing to the 1 Corinthian church, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians, this letter. And he's saying, I would rather speak five understandable words to somebody in the church than to speak 10,000 unintelligible tongue words to the people that would have no way of knowing what's being spoken. Now, understand this. This is very, very key when we start looking at anything related to the Holy Spirit. If you are to get all of your understanding about the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit out of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you're going to fall a little short of a complete understanding. Why? We referenced this a few weeks ago because Paul was writing to the Corinthian church about specific issues going on in that church. So let me give you an example. Let's imagine that the apostle Paul is still living today and he is just walking around and he's teaching and he's writing and he's giving us a complete understanding of the ways of God and the way that God works. Let's imagine that I, as the campus pastor of this church, write a letter to Paul and say, in our church, here's the problem. We're pursuing all the things that you're teaching. But 
we're having three specific issues. And I'll just call some people out. They don't, they don't do this. They're really good people. But Trevor, he starts speaking in tongues. And in the middle of his tongues, David starts speaking in tongues too. And then some lady on the backside over there starts screaming at both of them or possessed by a devil. So then what's Paul going to do? He's going to write a letter to me in response to the specific issues that I have talked about. And he's going to address the order needed when tongues are exercised in the church. He's going to write a specific letter addressing people yelling out in the church or people looking at specific ways that God might be using them and thinking that they're more spiritual and have authority over others that God might be speaking through. So he's writing to specific issues within that local church. Now, those things are applicable to us. But if we pull all that we know about the Holy Spirit and the way that God works through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives from those two letters, we would be a little short because those are addressing specific issues within that local church. So we have to look beyond that to find greater examples. But Paul is saying to them specifically, and we're going to address this at the end. I'm not trying to push everything to the end, but a lot of this comes together in one kind of ending here. But Paul is specifically addressing and saying, listen, there's more to this in the corporate body, the community body of the church. There's more to this than just looking at charismatic gifts. That's a big part of this, but there's more to it than that. So understand that it's about what we read in 1 Corinthians 12, the building up, the common good, the edifying of the body. So 1 Corinthians 14, let's hang there because Paul does a great job of of explaining gifts in the context of community. Let's look at this. Who is tongues for? How does it even work? 1 Corinthians 14 verses 26 through 33. What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. So if you ever have anybody ask you about what's the purpose of tongues, it's for the strengthening of the church. It's for the building up of the body. What's the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What's the purpose of the other gifts of the spirit for the strengthening of the body? If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is, what is said here. Talking about discernment. If a revelation comes, from, comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. Talking about self-control here. That the spirit's not going to do something in our corporate body that none of us have control over. Right? The idea that self-control can be demonstrated even through the work of the spirit. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And again... This comes from some of my own misgivings, but I don't know, even though I heard this quoted sometimes, maybe even out of context a little bit, I don't know that I had a full understanding that there was some order to the way that God speaks to his people. There was some order to the way that God's spirit and his power worked through this. Now, let me just say this. I tweeted this yesterday that I was excited about preaching and teaching on the power of the Holy Spirit and maybe even to demystify it a little. You can't demystify everything about the Holy Spirit. You can't take out every part of the mystery and the wonder and the miraculous and the supernatural. You can't do that. You can't explain it all the way. I would love to tell you for those that just need you're that analytical mind. You need everything to A plus, you know, B equals. You need every piece to match. There's parts to faith that really are about the unseen. And, and, and I, I have no other answers for you than that. 
That there are parts of the way that God and His Spirit work in and through our lives that cannot be explained really succinctly in, in the nice, tidy way that you want it. But I do believe that this scripture here shows us that God is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos and confusion. It, it, Looking at that from the opposite side, what we saw at creation is that he brought order to chaos. And I don't think we see the reverse when his spirit starts working in and through us. And so I do believe that God speaks in and through his people. And I believe what he read right there in 1 Corinthians 14, what we read in verse 26, is that every one of us has the ability to have the gifts of the spirit at work in and through us for the sake of the community, of the body. So what's the bottom line? Let's kind of bring all this together. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is this. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a powerful thing that every believer should seek. I believe that. Every believer should seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's about the fullness of God's Spirit in and through me. But there's more to it than just the charismatic. There's more to it than just some of the specific manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit. Because that same Spirit that we read about, In Galatians chapter 5, there's a reference to the fact that there is a fruit of that spirit. What is fruit? Fruit is a physical manifestation of something that's happening on the inside of a plant or a tree. There's a a bud. There's something that is displayed outwardly to show the character, show the inner workings. You know, something that, that grows apples shows you that there's apple all the way in through the veins of that thing. The same is true about the the fruit of the Spirit that are listed in Galatians chapter 5. Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And probably here is where I got messed up as a kid. Because I saw a lot of people who claimed to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit that displayed very little of the fruit. That was my problem. I sat in judgment against them because they claimed to be used by God in these really powerful, incredible ways. And they spoke in tongues and they gave interpretations and maybe they had a word of knowledge or word of prophecy. And I'm not even here now in, my, in the hopefully better maturity than I had then to say that God wasn't speaking through them. But when I looked at their lives, I didn't really see love or joy, or peace or patience or goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Not in every person. But there, there were a few, and they, they kind of warped me to what I even believed about this entire subject matter because of one or two, no pun intended, except that there's a little pun intended, bad apples. And, and I, think, I think my own theology got messed up a little. I think what I believed about the power of God got messed up because I, I saw some people that I just, I, I was trying to make it all fit together. How do people that claim to have the power of God not show me anything that displays anything about the presence of God in their life? And I was reminded of the passage in Matthew just this week as I was studying that Jesus referenced people like that. He said that there would come a day when people would show up to the day of judgment and they would stand before him and they would say, Hey, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And he would look at them and say, depart from me, for I never knew you. There may have been power at work. But something was missing. We don't have relationship. The presence doesn't exist. And I can't make all that connect the dots. I can't. I'd love to do that for you this morning. But here's what I know. Every believer should seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Every believer should seek the presence of And the power in its fullness of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we claim to be in relationship with God. 
And if I'm in relationship with God or anyone else for that matter, I want it to be a full, deep, abiding relationship. And I believe that's the promise that we have in Scripture. That Galatians chapter 5, which speaks about the fruit of the Spirit, is really about the character development. That the Spirit is at work in me, developing the character of God in me through, through the Spirit. And these verses that we've read today, the idea of baptism, is that, yeah, there are some charismatic parts to a relationship with God through the power of the Holy Spirit. But I shouldn't betray the charismatic while I work on the character. And I shouldn't betray the character in seeking the charismatic. Again, maybe that's just me. But I choose to seek both. A couple years ago, I tried to lose some weight. Um, I succeeded for a time and then gained that plus a lot more. But my, my methods were flawed. No kidding, don't make fun of me. My basic dietary plan was we fit and drinking Coke Zero. That was it. Not like change my diet. No. I'm going to do We Fit and I'm going to drink Coke Zero. Now, recently Coke Zero has come out with some really funny commercials that have a tagline of the word and. Maybe you've seen these. They have these taglines and the guy gets, you know, hey, here's 20 bucks. And he says, and, and keys to a new car and a new girlfriend or whatever it is that they have. Because he's saying, hey, I get to have the taste of Coke with no calories. Let me just say, it's not really the taste of Coke. It's just kind of tricks you because you're, you're starving from sacrificing other things in your diet. But the and part to that advertising campaign has really stuck with me because I thought about other areas of my life where I don't just want one or the other. I want both. I think when we talk about the Holy Spirit, that's where we're at. Do you want the indwelling of the spirit that comes at conversion? Yes. Do you want the infilling of the spirit that comes through baptism? Yes. Seek both. You can have his presence and his power. Can you get into heaven with one or the other? Probably. Yes, I think so. But again, why would you want that? Like the goal of life, I feel like I'm on a soapbox today. The goal of life is not to get to heaven. The goal of life is relationship with God. Heaven just affords us the opportunity to have that relationship for eternity. The goal of life is relationship. The goal of the purpose is to be about the mission and plan of God, which Pastor Justin and I are going to tag team on next week. We're going to look at what, what does that purpose look like? What does the mission look like? What does it mean to be a witness? What does it mean to, to take the power of God and do something that actually matters beyond ourself? Do I want the presence of God? Yes, absolutely. And I want the power of God. I want the presence so that the character inside of me more reflects the nature of the God that I claim to be in relationship with. And who better, than, who better to develop that nature and that character in me than the spirit of the God I am seeking? And I want to be used by God. I want to be about the purposes and the plans of God. And I want to do things outside of my own strength, outside of my own power. And I believe that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes that looks like tongues. Sometimes that looks like miracles. Sometimes that looks like healing. Sometimes that looks like prophecy. Sometimes that just looks like other tangible, practical ways of edifying, of building up others in the body.
but it's power. It's the power of God to do the work of God. I believe you can be saved without that power. But I don't know that if you told me I could be in relationship with my wife, but still be missing this huge part that really brings fullness to that relationship, that I would tell you that that was what I was seeking. I, I want everything that's involved here. I want everything that's involved. I want, I want the fullness of relationship. And I believe that when you talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's what you find. You find the presence and the power because God makes himself available to us in that way. Final scripture as we close. I'm going to ask the band to come. 1 Corinthians 13 is a chapter called the love chapter. Interestingly, it's between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. 12 and 14 are verses that we've read today a good bit from because Paul is addressing some of the specifics of spiritual gifts in the context of the individual believer and in the local body of a church. Right in the middle of that is 1 Corinthians 13 talking about love. And Paul is addressing some of the mentality of the people in that church. And I would, cl- I would say it's safe to assume that some of us in this church or maybe others in other churches, they possess the same mentality. And it's the idea that it's okay to seek the charismatic and leave behind some of the character. And I think Paul addresses that pretty clearly in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, when he says this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I have nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. I want the presence and I want the power. I want the charismatic and the character. I want the and. I want both. I want both. I I want, if God says there's something available to me through his spirit, I want all of that. I want all of that. I, I want his presence and his power. I want his character and the charismatic gifts. I want both. And God says that we can have that. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. I know this topic. It's confusing to some. I know it's uncomfortable for some. I know it kind of flies in the face of some things that maybe you've been taught or even experienced. And I believe one of the most important, I don't think there's any elevation to any of them, one of the most vital spiritual gifts in any body is the gift of discernment. Why? Because it allows us to discern, to determine what is and what is not a work of the Spirit. And so for anybody in this room, that has ever been a part of any worship experience, been a part of a service, been a part of a ministry, been a part of a church, been a part of a group. And something happened that was attributed to the Holy Spirit and you're just not convinced that it lines up with Scripture. I want to do two things and I don't really have the right or the authority to do either. I want to apologize to you. 
It may not even be that it was wrong. It may not even be that those people were out of order. But if the scriptures are true and that God is a God of God of order, He's not a God of chaos. And let me just apologize to you today, probably just on my own because I've been there. And let me just say to you, second of all, don't run away from the Holy Spirit because of that. Don't don't miss out on the fullness of God because of one bad experience. One confusing moment. One moment that you couldn't wrap your arms around completely. Let me encourage you to do one thing. Seek Him. Seek Him. Ask the God whose spirits whose spirit gives gifts, whose spirit develops character, ask God to do those things in you. Ask God to develop in you all that He wants. God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for what You've given to us. I thank You that You give to us understanding by your word I thank you for the stories in scripture where you helped some people that were a lot like us to bring clarity to what it means to live by the spirit in the context of community so God today we seek you and in seeking you we seek both your presence and your power We seek you, and in seeking you, we seek both the character and the charismatic. God, help us not to run away out of fear or bad experience. Help us to seek the purity of you and your spirit. And let us as a body be open, what we sang about earlier, be open to your presence open to your power at work in and through us for the sake of your glory and the building up of your church.